Good afternoon. This is John Richardson speaking with you from Toronto, Canada. Today is Sunday, December the 3rd, 2023 in Toronto. And it is, I believe, uh, December the 4th in Australia, where Karen Alpert is joining us from. Have I got that right, Karen? That's right. Oh, my God. And imagine this, a podcast taking two days, taking place on two days. And Laura Snyder is, I believe, in Eastern Standard Time as well, somewhere or other. And we are meeting today to continue our discussion, our podcasting, if you will, of Laura Snyder's working paper series, of which there are currently 16. And today we are bringing working paper number four to the retail market. In other words, you can listen to it. And here we have extraterritorial taxation number four, why nothing changes. Laura, surely you're joking. Nothing changes? Well, not in the realm of extraterritorial taxation. There's a lot of people have been trying for a while to get changes and well, okay, things do change, but they seem to get worse rather than better. Now that's very interesting as a starting point. Things change, but they get worse. Karen, what are your give any comment on that? Things getting worse. They change for the worse rather than change for the better. Well, I think it's going to take quite a while for um, the U.S. general public and Congress to understand what we're on about, why there's a problem. So I think a good place to start is to, to start with how the U.S. general public and Congress view Americans who, who choose to live outside of the U.S. And to a large extent, they're stigmatized, aren't they, Laura? Yeah, this is a big problem. Um, they're highly stigmatized. And it's not just people who choose to live outside the U.S., but who were live there for reasons that were beyond their choosing. Either they were born, citizens born outside the U.S., or they moved outside the U.S. with their families when they were young. Choose or not, they are Americans who live outside the U.S. And from the inception of citizenship-based taxation, um, they've been stigmatized. Um, you know, back in 1864, um, when Senator Jacob Collamer said, uh, basically, you know, we do not desire that our citizens who have incomes in this country, blah, blah, okay, we don't want them to reside in Paris or elsewhere, avoiding the risk of being drafted or contributing anything personally. If a man draws his income um, from the public debt or from property here and resides in Paris, skulking away from him, contributing his personal support to the government in this day of its extremity, he ought to pay a higher income tax. So you talk about Americans skulking away to Paris. And, you know, they're stigmatized again in, in 1894 when Senator George Hoare said, uh, well, basically, when American citizens go abroad, they are escaping their burdens of the burdens of citizenship. And he says, I'm sorry, they go abroad for the very purpose of escaping the, the, the obligations of citizenship. They lived in luxury and at less cost and a foreign capital and none of the voluntary obligations of, of of charity or contributions to churches. And he says, um, if there's one human being we ought to tax, it's that is it's that human being. If there's any good in an income tax, it would be a good thing if it did that, which he meant tax the overseas citizen. 
and you can go through, you know, to the modern day of of po policymakers uh, making proclamations that uh, show that they uh, hold overseas Americans in contempt and they stigmatize them. Um, so Senator Max Bocas in 1995 um, talked about Americans are going to great lengths, thousands of miles to other countries to avoid paying their fair share. Well, apparently when you live overseas, you only you do so to avoid paying taxes. And and so what and they give up their most sacred possession, American citizenship, to find a tax loophole. These are he says these are precisely the sort of greedy, unpatriotic people that FDR called malfactors malefactors of great wealth let us not allow enough many more of these rich freeloaders to get away and um and then you've got um neil neil abercrombie um, who was a representative in 1995 talked about americans overseas as sleazy bums who don't want to pay their taxes and uh you've got uh leslie samuels uh, from the department of treasury talking about expatriates as economic benedict arnold's there's more examples, but I think I've I've given you enough well, right there. I mean, this is this is really fascinating stuff because you know as you go through the the history of this, uh, what I think is fascinating is the first person you talked about. Uh, the name escapes me, but that doesn't matter. Is saying that well, not only should Americans abroad be taxed, but they should be taxed more punitively. Yeah. Now that's very interesting. Now, Karen. I want to ask you a question. Is it the case today that Americans abroad are taxed more punitively than resident Americans? Certainly it is, because not only are the people who leave the country to, to live outside it stigmatized, any income they have that is outside of the U.S. is stigmatized by the tax code. There's all sorts of xenophobic uh, provisions in the tax codes. Passive foreign investment companies, controlled foreign corporations, all of these things have much higher burden in terms of tax and compliance costs than similar investments and, and businesses run domestically inside the U.S. Very interesting. Now, the second person, Laura... Or sorry, yeah. did you want to add something? There? I was going to say it's very clear. It's very clear from the statements of these policymakers that they thought that overseas Americans should be punished. So the the policies the policies conform to that. Well, I think that's exactly right. And what's interesting, the second person you mentioned, what I heard was most notable, and he said, "Well, if anybody should be taxed, it should be Americans abroad." Yeah, that's exactly what he said. If he said. If a citizen goes abroad under the circumstances I've stated, he ought to do, the, okay, he is the one human being we ought to tax. If there's any good in an income tax, that would be a good thing if it, if it did that, which basically in his mind, if you're going to tax anybody at all, it's the overseas citizen. Do you think, Laura, well, I, have we reached the point, okay, where, I mean, has anybody proposed that uh, the only people who should be taxed are overseas Americans? Should they be supporting resident Americans? What do you think? Well, um, clearly there's a lot of people who think that. I mean, through these penalizing policies, um, you're basically asking overseas Americans to, to yeah, to bear a, a greater burden than the American resident bears. And then we come forward in history to the, you know, these Democrats like uh, Max Backus and, and Leslie Samuels. Now, 
I don't know if this is in your paper or not, but Leslie Samuels, uh, that's his name, right? Leslie Samuels? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was Assistant Secretary for Tax That's right. Policy. He was Assistant okay. Secretary Treasury. Mm -hmm. uh, and he was largely responsible for the original exit tax rules, right? I mean, remember... Yeah, well, this this statement, this statement that he made was in connection was he made it at the time that they were changing the, the exit tax rules to be what they are now. And that's where he was quoted saying, if you've got your riches from America, you should pay your fair share of taxes. These expatriates are really like economic Benedict Arms. Now that's that's very interesting stuff. Karen, did you get your riches from America? Me personally? Yeah. <laughs> no, I earned what what little I have. I earned it, and most of it I earned here in Australia. Do you? But do you think that maybe they might say, "Well, it was only because of an American that you were able to generate what little you had." Look, I'm sure somebody will say that. I I disagree entirely. Okay, Laura, your riches. Do they come from America? Well, this is the problem, John. In these rules encompass, you know, they have in mind, and at the time that they made, you know, the time he was speaking, he was speaking in reaction to um, an article that appeared in I can't remember his news or uh, Newsweek or Time, one of those weekly magazines that profiled a handful of of uh, wealthy U.S. residents who took advantage of then uh, a very favorable uh, tax rules for people, for non-citizens who lived outside the United States, who invested in the United States. So there was a handful of them, of Americans who did gain their riches from America and who left the country and renounced their U.S. citizenship. And so th there was this huge uproar in response to that article. And so, you know, suddenly you've got these even more penalizing exit tax, but it isn't focused on people who truly did get their riches from America. It is focused on everyone who has U.S. citizenship, regardless of where they got their riches from. And of course, the overwhelming majority of Americans living outside the United States have lived outside the United States on a long-term basis, 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years, most of their lives. And they, whatever little they have, because let's face it, most of them are as wealthy as any other ordinary American, um, they, whatever they have, they got from what they did in the country where they live. And to say that they got their riches from America is absurd. So the problem is, the problem is that this U.S. exit tax is imposed at the time you lose citizenship rather than the time you leave the U.S. Because Congress completely conflates the two. Yes. Yes. So, so that would mean, Karen, presumably, that to extend what you're saying, that when the U.S. exit tax is applied to these people, it's generally applied to non-U.S. assets that were acquired during a period they didn't live in the United States. Is that a fair statement? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, very interesting, uh, in the 1996 or 1995 hearings, Leslie Samuels made a remarkable statement about how the exit tax actually was intended to work. And I can almost quote this. I mean, it was so outrageous when I heard it. It's, been permanently burned into my brain. He says, well, all we're asking is that people pay their capital gains. 
their accrued capital gains. And that, of course, is one of the most outrageous lies ever because the real problem with the exit tax as applied to Americans abroad, Karen, is what? It's their retirement accounts. Their retirement accounts, it's their pensions. And, you know, consistent with your recognition that Americans abroad are taxed more punitively than resident Americans, uh, would you be able to comment on the difference between how, in the context of the exit tax, the U.S. taxes non-U.S. pensions versus how it taxes U.S. pensions? But with U.S. pensions, you're given the option of deferring it until you withdraw. With the, with foreign pensions, it's taxed immediately on the date of um on on the date that you renounce if you're subject to if you're covered. Right, right. So so not so you know not only Americans abroad tax more punitively generally, but even the exit tax rules apply to them more punitively. Of which the most outrageous example is the virtual confiscation of their their non-U.S. pensions versus a U.S. resident can keep the pension, right? Right. So so it's clear that the U.S. tax laws st stigmatize those who live abroad and the income that they earn abroad. But that's not the only um, reason why nothing changes, is it, Laura? We've oh, no. got, uh, uh, there, there's some misunderstandings that people have about how you know, tax treaties. Don't the tax treaties fix all of this? They definitely don't. Um, there's a misunderstanding, uh, you know, people who don't, who don't, who think they understand, but don't. Um, their perception is that because there is a tax treaty between the U.S. And, and many other countries, that the tax treaty actually solves all of these double taxation problems and, and leaves people whole and you know, you're not paying tax to two different countries, you're not penalized in some way. And what they fail to understand is that most of the tax treaties, well, all of the tax treaties have the saving clause in it that basically operates to deny, for the most part, um, to American citizens living outside the United States, the, the benefit of, of the tax treaties, for the most part. Now, I know that both John and Karen uh, understand how the tax treaties work better than I do. So I'm going to let you guys uh, fill in. But before we do that, I just want to make one more remark about stigmatization. I think the, what you have to understand about why it matters that um, overseas Americans are stigmatized is because when you stigmatize a group of people, you are giving permission to treat those people punitively. If they are bad, as bad as, as you say when you stigmatize them, then you it's fine to treat them badly. And that is that is the problem with stigmatizing. It justifies the penalizing policies. But so we can go back to the tax treaties and 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 like I said, um John and Karen understand the issues with the tax treaties better than I do. So I'll let them fill in on that. Well, so I, I think I would agree. Yeah, I think I would agree, Laura, that the savings clause is a definite problem. But the other problem is, guess what? The country where these Americans live has their own tax system, and it treats things differently than the U.S. does. And what? And when people are subject to double tax or double compliance because they're U.S. citizens, not necessarily double taxation, but the, there are things that one country gives in the terms of um, concessions or uh, yeah, th 
things that we're trying to incentivize via the tax system system and what one country gives the other country takes away could you give an example so, retirement savings so if if i'm living in australia i'm a member of a superannuation fund because that's required my employer required to to do that and australia provides certain tax concessions to allow that or to encourage that and to um and to encourage people to put even more into their super if they can afford to. But the U.S. doesn't see it as a qualified U.S. retirement plan because it's not organized under U.S. rules. So the initial contributions aren't tax-free. You know, of course, they're not tax-free in Australia either. They're taxed to the fund and not to the individual. The income inside the fund may or may not depending on how the fund is reported on a U.S. tax return, may or may not be taxed currently to the U.S. tax, uh, the U.S. citizen. And then the withdrawals from the fund, Australia has incentivized saving via to superannuation by making withdrawals from the fund completely tax-free after age 60. So, But of course, they're not tax-free in, in the U.S. Of course, all along, the fund has been paying tax internally at a concessional rate on the income. And of course that is not paid by the individual. So it's not available as a, um, as a tax credit. So all of these incentives that Australia has put into place regarding retirement are completely undone for the US citizen living in Australia. All right. I think there's plenty Go ahead, John. of that, including an even more pedestrian example that in many countries, the sale of a principal residence uh, is tax free. And at least in Canada, I mean, that's an important form of retirement planning, et cetera. So the bottom line, I think we can safely say is that uh, it is absolutely not the case that tax treaties uh, protect American citizens outside the United States from U.S. tax problems, correct? That's right. Yeah, that's that's the bottom line, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So what other misunderstandings have you identified, Laura? Well, there's also a lot of misunderstandings about how the foreign tax credit and the foreign earned income exclusions work and and how um, how to what extent they actually do benefit overseas Americans. And so I'll, I can... I'll make a few remarks and then I'm sure that you, the two of you are going to have some things to add on that. Um, the first one is, is people think, oh, the foreign earned income exclusion, which I think right now is around $120,000. Um, they say, oh, well, you know, your first $120,000 aren't taxed. So what's your problem? Um, thinking that this is a gift to, to overseas Americans. Well, there's a lot going on there that is not acknowledged. Um, the first thing is, is this is not $120,000 um, that's given tax-free to the overseas American. Most overseas Americans live in countries with normal tax systems, and they are paying tax on that money in the country where they live. The other, another thing is, is that um, regardless of what the foreign earned income exclusion is, it has no bearing on the requirement to file a U.S. tax return. The thresholds applicable for, for the requirement to file are something completely separate from the foreign earned income exclusion. And what's important to keep in mind there is that the, the filing threshold for married filing separately is $5. 
Um, so basically, if, if you've got any income at all, you're required and, and you're filing married filing separately, you've got to file a U.S. tax return. And um, this disproportionately affects overseas Americans because they are disproportionately married to people who are not U.S. citizens, nor, nor citizens, nor residents of the U.S. And so they're not in the U.S. tax system. So this forces um, of overseas Americans who are married to such persons, if they don't qualify as head of household, to use the married filing separately threshold. So they can have $6 of income and be required to file a hugely complicated tax return. Um, and it's the tax returns when you live overseas, regardless of how much your income is, it's very complicated. Many people can't figure out how to do it correctly, and they feel they have no choice but to pay a professional to do it. And believe me, those professionals cost a lot more than $6. Um, and then you've also, once you understand, okay, you've got to file this return, um, it, regardless of which threshold you're, you're qualifying under, it is a very complicated uh, return compared to what a domestic filers return is. And what you see when you survey overseas Americans is you see that their returns average 40 to 50 pages in length, and they're paying professionals $1,000, $2,000, $3,000 if they've if they've got a CFC more than that per year mm -hmm. to file their return. If CFC you can get some- What's a CFC? A controlled foreign corporation. If they, uh, basically if they operate a small business outside the United States, there they're looking at much higher uh, returns. If they've got a PFIC, they're looking at much higher costs to prepare the return just because of how complex the returns are. And this is the case whether they owe tax or not. And most, um, I think the last time we looked at the calculations, it's it, more than 60% of tax returns filed from outside the United States show no tax owed. So you've got people spending, you know, more than a thousand, two thousand, three thousand dollars a year to file a tax return that shows they don't owe any U.S. tax. Um, and then, and then we've got the issue. People think, oh, well, you have a foreign tax credit, and that also Before will take we care of foreign tax credit. I wonder. I'd like to ask Karen to weigh in on any further points that should be made about the foreign earned income exclusion, the type so, of income excludable. Yeah, so the, the, the thing is, it's in the name. It's the foreign earned income oh, exclusion, right? That part. So yes. that means that, sure, if you're earning your income, and if you're an employee, great. If you're running a small business as a what would be a Schedule C business in the U.S., that 120000 is your gross receipts not your net income. So it's basically useless if you're running a small business. And um, if you're a retiree, your your money's not earned. It's, it's retirement savings. Absolutely. So, I mean, would I be correct if I were to make the following statement that retirement income is not going to be excludable under the foreign earned income exclusion period. That's right. All right. Well, so, so it, it's well, very clear in the in the legislation. It has to be earned in the current year. So defer any deferred income is not um, any way that it's been deferred through retirement savings, through um, you know option plans, employee uh, bonus plans, whatever. Anything that's deferred is not. Um, 
eligible for the foreign earned income. All right. So in very, very simple people talk, the people who would use this, whether it's a good idea or not to use it, the people who would use it is going to be restricted pretty much to employment income, right? In real time. Right. It's basically going to be employees. Okay. So <laughs> any kind of investment income or anything is going to uh, mean that it has to be reported outside that. Okay. Uh, now, I Laura, wonder also. John, John, what, I, what I've put in my papers generally about this is I say that the foreign earned income exclusion becomes less and less relevant for overseas Americans the longer they live outside the United States. Um, you know, you can think typically when someone moves overseas, say in their 20s, um, they're probably their initial source of income is going to be a salary, you know, some sort of employment. But the longer you live outside the United States, the more likely it is you're going to have sources of income from um, maternity or unemployment benefits um, from um, some sort of disability benefit, from your retirement benefits, from some sort of capital gains or investments. And so the longer you live overseas, the, the more likely it is you're going to have those forms of income that are irrelevant for the foreign earned income exclusion that don't qualify for that. Right, definitely. Okay. Um, now, one other thing before we leave this, I, I think that, you know, it's been a great discussion. I think there's this uh, raises a lot of issues, but Laura, one of the things you'd said was, and this is absolutely correct, is that to make use of the foreign earned income exclusion, you have to file a return, right? You're required to file. Right. A sure. Karen, considering the, the requirement to file a tax return and form 8938, reporting of foreign financial assets, do you have any comments on that particularly? Yeah, well, once you have to file a return, you have to see whether you've meet the thresholds to file the form 8938, and then whether or not you file a return, there's the FBAR as well. But the 8938 would encompass, in most countries, it would encompass your retirement savings. So even though there's a higher threshold for Americans living abroad, their retirement savings, especially as they get closer to retirement. Um, if your retirement savings is enough to live off of, it's enough that you're going to have to file a Form 8938. And in, and in many cases, filing a uh, Form 8938 would include uh, filing accounts that are owned by a foreign spouse, right? A non-U.S. spouse? If any jointly owned account, any account that you've got um, an ownership interest in. Okay, okay. All right. Uh, well, I mean, I think it's pretty clear that uh, the foreign earned income exclusion is rather limited in applicability. Karen, before we turn the foreign tax credit discussion over to Laura, I wonder if you could tee this up a little bit by, um, is it generally better to use the foreign file using foreign tax credits or foreign earned income exclusion? Or what are your thoughts okay. on that? It depends on, of course, the tax system in the country where you're living. But for most OECD countries, the individual taxes are higher than in the US. So if if you're paying more in tax where you live than your US tax would be, it's better to use the foreign tax credit. And the reason is that the foreign tax credit, um, any excess tax that you pay locally where you live, uh, can be 
held over and carried over to uh, offset U.S. tax in future years for up to 10 years. So using the foreign tax credit can't, now they, there's some limitations, different baskets of types of income that that don't apply to, but um, you uh, quite often people find that something unexpected happens. And if they've got 10 years worth of foreign tax credit that carried over that they can use, that can mean the difference between paying U.S. tax that year and not paying U.S. tax. For, for example, uh, taking a distribution out of a foreign pension plan, perhaps. Perhaps a, that or a uh, termination payment if you get laid off. Right. Okay. Unemployment um, benefits, things like that. Yeah. So, Laura... I mean, you've got this uh, foreign tax credit thing as part of a, a heading of pervasive misunderstanding. So how do people misunderstand the issue of, you know, the, the foreign tax credit thing? Why do they think that, uh, you know, that means somehow there's no problem? Well, I'm sure there's lots of reasons, but the one I'll mention here is um, you can only claim a foreign tax credit if you actually paid the tax. And so what can happen is if you live in a in a place where for that specific type of income, the country where you live either doesn't tax it or taxes it at a lower rate than the United States does, you or regardless, you are going to pay the highest rate of tax between the country where you live and the United States. If the country where you live is 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 a higher rate of tax than the US for that given form of income, then you're going to pay that tax to the country where you live. You're and since the U.S. tax is at a lower rate, you're not going to pay any U.S. tax. You'll be able to claim a full credit if if you can do the calculations right, because actually applying foreign tax credits is very complicated and it doesn't always work that cleanly. Um, now, another the problem is, is that, OK, you live in a place where the U.S. taxes that given income at a higher rate than the country where you live. Well, guess what? You then are gonna pay more tax than your neighbor will on that type of income. Why? Because your neighbor is only paying tax to the country where you live, whereas you've got this extra tax that you've got to pay to the United States. So the foreign tax credit you know, just doesn't do you any good. And, and the treaty doesn't save you there either. And the bottom line is, is that when you're subject to two different tax systems, you are going to pay the higher rate of whichever system it, you know, whichever system has the higher rate, that's the rate you're going to pay. So, so right. in other words, uh, what, what your working paper demonstrates is that uh, it is not the case that treaties, the foreign earned income exclusion or the foreign tax credit rules somehow prevent you from having to pay U.S. tax on foreign income. Definitely not. Yeah, the other the other issue I'd raise just briefly is that there's also timing issues. So what if the U.S. taxes something before your uh, local government does? Well, you're the so the the TCJA re repatriation tax is a good example of that. The U.S. is deeming income now that's going to be taxed when you distribute the that income in your local country, but you're not going to be able to take a tax credit you know on the US side for foreign taxes you haven't yet paid because you haven't made the distribution and on the other side you're not going to be able to take a tax credit for taxes paid by the to the US years earlier because they had that 
mandatory repatriation tax. So the timing matters as well as is the point. Right, right. So, I mean, if we look at the mand the mandatory repatriation tax, uh, what's going on there is essentially a deeming of income. No income was actually received. Yeah, and the U.S. is front-running the local government. Right, you know, creating double taxation. So would it be reasonable to say that the group of people who say, oh, come on, you're being an idiot. All you have to do is file a tax return. The treaty and all this stuff prevents double taxation. If a tax preparer said that to you, Laura, would your reaction be, maybe I should find another tax preparer? <laughs> Definitely. But unfortunately, John, a lot of people think that. A lot of people think that. They do. They do. Why do they think this? I mean, it's very clear that it's wrong. I mean, it's very clear that it's true only in certain circumstances for certain people at certain times in their lives. But why do, you know, why do people continually buy into this nonsense? Well, I, you know, I'm not in people's heads. So, you know, but I think at least one important reason is, I think there's a lot of reasons, but what I talk about in my paper is the high complexity. Um, I think that, you know, even our discussion so far, there's a lot of things we have not even touched on in this discussion so far. Right. And yet and yet we've touched on a lot. And it's very clear what we've talked about is very complicated. Um, and I think that it, it, because it's so complicated, it's, you know, it's very difficult and extremely time consuming to really learn what's happening and, and understand it. And so I, I think that it, it, the instinctive uh, reaction that many people have is to just ignore it, refuse to, 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 to address it, to downplay the complexity, to dismiss it. Um, what I was, you know, I can give one of many, many examples, but one of the, something that really shocked me when I was writing these papers, um, there was someone who published uh, a paper in one of the better known tax law journals, law reviews. And um, she did a whole discussion kind of defending um, citizenship-based taxation. Um, but she, to her entire, um, her entire conversation was focused on the foreign earned income exclusion and how you could make changes that to that to maybe make things a little better. And she, ex she didn't, she didn't just not address other issues you know, like income that's not addressed by the foreigner income exclusion, she expressly refused to address it. She said, she she says, after all, the foreigner income uh, exclusion applies only to earned income attributable to services performed. So in her mind, it was not worthwhile to even address all the other complexities because the foreigner income exclusion had nothing to do with them. It was very convoluted reasoning, but it, her reasoning was, okay, you know, I'm just not even gonna, I'm not in addressing this this tax system, I am not even going to take into account anything unrelated to the foreign earned income exclusion. Well, fine, then if you're going to do that, then of course, you are unable and unwilling to acknowledge and understand this incredible range of complexities. We're having to do with PFIX, with retirement planning, with with foreign with how the foreign earned income exclusion applies, with using foreign tax credits, with how you buy and sell um, assets, with currency fluctuations, with problems owning a small business, um, with you know how local tax rules interact with American tax rules, just none of it, none of it by 
the defenders of this system, they do not acknowledge or attempt to contend with the immense complexities of the system. Karen, would you agree with that? I mean, what, what's your, I mean, Absolutely. you're, you know, uh, Basically, the, the response is, if you don't like it, renounce. Okay. Is it, isn't that what you hear from these people? Yep. Yeah, they say this is the price you've got to pay to be able to return to the United States. This is the price you've got to pay for the privilege of U.S. citizenship. You hear all sorts of reasons that people basically, you know, pull out of the air. I would have to think that a further complication here is that Americans in different countries would experience this in different ways, right? You know, depending on the tax system in the country and, you know, in some cases. Definitely very country specific. So, I mean, you know, there's that problem as well. And Karen, would you say as, you know, you're, you're an educator, a high-end CPA, all this stuff, would you say there's a long learning curve to understand this from a tax perspective? Absolutely. Absolutely. You, you can't just go to someone who's very good at domestic U.S. taxes and, you know, practicing it, um, as a tax preparer in California and say, hey, do my return. I live in Australia because they're not going to have any clue about a lot of these things. Yeah. Yeah. And of course, they're not really incentivized to learn the stuff. I mean, because it, it, I think I think it takes years to learn this stuff. You know, to become really fluent. Yeah. Do you think that's it accurate? Does. Or is that it just does. a slowness of so, so the last um, area of misunderstanding that Laura lists in her paper um, is one that I've experienced, <laughs> what we've all experienced, right? It's, you know, if you, um, well, the, the, the organization or that can change this is U.S. Congress, right? And does U.S. Congress listen to Americans abroad? What do you think, Laura? Does <laughs> no, do they, they do not listen. Problem. They <laughs> do not listen to us at all. This is a short answer to your question. Right. Um, and and this is yeah in 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 this paper discussing why things don't change. Um, lack of political influence is is a big reason why things don't change. Um, we are not. Uh, we don't have a lot of money. Uh, we are just, you know, there's this perception that we're really rich people. But of course, um, we don't have any, um, you know, organization with lots of money uh, that can, you know, ha have have uh, influence in Congress on that basis. It's it's kind of funny. There is this, again, this assumption we're very rich, but there's absolutely no proof of it at all. And if we were that wealthy, wouldn't we already be uh, wielding that influence with our money in Congress to get the laws changed. But we don't have the money. Uh, we're, we're not able to organize in that way. And the other problem is, is that, you know, we're all registered to vote based on, we don't vote as, as a as a block. There is no block of, of overseas Americans. We don't have our own representative in Congress. Uh, we couldn't because you have to be living in a state to, to be a member of Congress. And we're registered to vote, um, uh, you know, across practically all the districts uh, because we're registered where we usually where we last lived when we lived in the United States. Obviously, exceptions to that, but that's the general rule. And so you've got a very, you know, uh, our, our representatives don't see us as true constituents. 
Um, you know, we are we are not we don't live in their district. So why should they care about us? They think, well, my people actually living in my district have all sorts of problems. I can't be wasting my time and resources and political capital on overseas Americans. You know, who cares about them, really? Um, and so, yeah, there's a million reasons and, why. Yeah. Can all overseas Americans vote? Oh, well, that's a good point. No, not all overseas Americans can vote. Um, certain states, um, I'm sure I'm going to forget some aspect of this, but um, basically, if you if you were born outside the United States, um, it depend, you can vote, you can register to vote only depending on where your parent, your U.S. citizen parent was last registered to vote. And there are I think about 12, 13 states um, where uh, they, so all states except those 12 or 13 will allow you to register where your parent was last registered to vote, regardless of, you know, whether they live there, you know, at that time when you register, it doesn't matter. But there's about 12 or 13 states where they do not allow that. So for example, if you were born outside the United States, you live outside the United States and your parent, US citizen parent was last registered to vote in Florida, that's one of the states, you're out of luck. You will not be able to vote. Now, this does not change your tax obligations at all, your tax obligations to the United States, but there's no way you're gonna be voting unless you move to the United States and get an address that way. You know, an interesting observation on my part, just listening to listening to you talk about this today, um, you know, we're talking about people who had some connection to the United States, right? At least in this conversation. But I mean, these rules apply to a whole group of people who've never had any connection to the United States, other than just you know the sheer unfortunate circumstance of having been born in the United States. I mean, isn't this really shocking that you know these rules? clearly are interpreted to apply to people with no connection whatsoever to the United States, may never have lived there, may not even speak English. John, that's absolutely true. And it, it is shocking. Um, I hesitate to, um, I, I'm uncomfortable with making too much of that. And here's the reason why. Um, why whether you've lived in the United States for one day of your life well, let me put it this way. You can have lived in the United States until the age of 10 and you're 11 years old and now you live outside the United States. You can have lived in the United States until the age of 20 and now you're 60 and you've been living outside the United States for the past 40 years. I don't think that that person is any less sympathetic than the person who only lived in the United States for a day or for 10 years. I, I, you know, what I mean is it's a very slippery slope. And to me, it, yes, it, those people situation does is seems more egregious, uh, less, even more immoral, but you know, I don't think that but that makes the situation of others any is, less. Either yeah. way, your point is that I presume that it's absolutely immoral to be claiming you know, this, the residents and tax residents of other countries is somehow U.S. tax residents. You would agree with that? Oh, well, obviously. Absolutely. Okay. Well, it's it's interesting. I mean, I think as far as the, uh, the lack of political influence, the way I usually put it is they don't care and they don't even care that they don't care. If If I were to write this paper today, 
Um, there's another, um, there's another element I would have added to this paper. Um, you know, there's, um, there's a book um, that a, a woman named Miranda Fricker wrote about epistemic injustice. And she talks about um, a form of injustice, a distinct form of injustice. Um, epistemic means of or relating to knowledge and epistemic injustice occurs when someone is unfairly undermined or dismissed in their capacity as a knower. Now that sounds kind of theoretical. What, what, I, what she means by this is where you have someone um, a testimonial injustice she talks about. And her example is of the police who do not believe a witness because the witness is black. Um, she says, this is where you will discount or dismiss the knowledge that someone has to offer uh, simply because of who they are or, well, that's one reason why you would. And when I learned about Fricker's work, I it was obvious to me that that is what's happening in this situation also. Because look at all the work uh, we have done and other organizations have done to make the situation known. All of the podcasts, John, that you've done, all of the blogs and your posts on your website, all of the articles that we've published, all of the, you know, IRS medics, uh, you you know, the list is long in Karen's website, all everything that everyone has done, that Arrow's done, uh, that Democrats Abroad has done, Republicans overseas, ev all the work everyone's done. And when you look at the people that are considered so-called experts on this topic, they completely ignore everything we've done. Either, either they ignore it, they do not acknowledge it, or from time to time, it is expressly discounted. Um, for example, um, oh God, what's Kirsch? Kirsch in one of his articles um, cites uh, one of the remarks that someone from ACA had made from American Citizens Abroad. And then he just immediately discounts it by saying that they are an insufficiently neutral source. And so he turns to the so-called expert of the matter, which would be the national taxpayer advocate. That's what he does in one of his articles. And, and you just see this time and time again, where what we have to contribute in terms of knowledge and experience is completely devalued by the people that, that should be looking at it, acknowledging it and contending with it. Well, Laura, I mean, I think that you're right. Okay. But you know, who, who was it was said that it's not what somebody doesn't know that bothers me. It's what they know that isn't so or isn't true. Yeah. And, you know, you've got this situation where these tax academics, you know, sort of think they know stuff. And I mean, would you disagree with me if I said that uh, the tax academics are uh, the last people I would look to to understand this issue? Well, yes, but unfortunately, that's not what is happening, John. But of course, well, it's that's not happening today. But, you know, Laura, I understand the frustration. I mean, we're all frustrated, but make no mistake about it. All the work that all these people have done is laying the foundation for eventual eventual success and victory. Had this work never been done, there'd be no chance. I mean, I'm perfectly confident that at the end of the day, this is going to be changed. All we're betting on is time. Exactly. No, I'm completely confident. Of this, I am a one hundred percent confident. I mean, I don't know when it's. I mean, it's certainly, um, you know, 
unlikely to happen, you know, in my effective career, so to speak. But make no mistake about it, all this work that individuals and groups have done is providing the foundation to get this changed. And I think it's important to, you know, not let the frustrations uh, with lawmakers, with the tax academic community, you know, to uh, somehow obscure this reality and in any way, shape, or form diminish the value of all the work that has been done, including all of your great work, Laura. Uh, you know, this is just the price you pay, uh, you know, to further a worthy goal and something that's going to take some time, right? Well. Hey, Laura. Okay, John. <laughs> oh, come on. Come on. All right. Um, well, this has been, you know, Another great discussion. Um, we sort of covered the outline. Does anybody have any any concluding comments here? Any great pieces of wisdom from Laura, for example? Oh, I'm I've said what I had to say. Any great words of encouragement from Karen, for example? Well, I just want to um, to say that the, when when there's been a great injustice in the United States, it has taken decades for change to happen. And the people at the very beginning don't think anything's moving. And then, and it slowly builds and eventually it's like a snowball, right? So we're at the slow building and this is part of why we think nothing's changing. But hopefully we're building the foundation so that the snowball can happen. Absolutely, I'm 100% confident of that, I really am. Um, you know, I I just simply, you know, I mean, I, I, you know, the way I view it is the tax academics in Congress are basically irrelevant. And the people who say, I mean, they're just a circumstance. And the people who say this will never change are simply wrong. That's their own view. You know, they're entitled to it. They're wrong. All right. Great discussion, Laura. Thanks not only for the podcast, but for the uh, the paper that you wrote as well. Great stuff. I wonder what all these people from hundreds of years ago who we were talking about today would have thought of this conversation. <laughs> who knows? Good question. Do you think they could foresee the arrival of Laura? Well, I don't I, I don't know that a hundred years ago, well, I think I think we have the system that they wanted. Would they have perceived the system as it is today? I'm sure not. I don't think anybody could have. But 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 in terms of the penalizing nature of it, it's what they wanted. Yeah. Well, I think it says a, a great deal about the role that taxation and tax taxes play in the United States generally. And this might be a good, you know, thing to close on. On November 30th, uh, you know, Ron Wyden, along with 15 other Democrats, uh, you know, uh, offers up this billionaire's tax act that is just so clearly you know, based on envy, punishment, and so clearly is going to operate in the same way the exit tax did, you know, the last time they talked about a billionaire's tax, how it's just going to trickle down to the average person. Uh, I mean, not only are we dealing with a culture in the United States that presume, you know, that's very comfortable with injustice generally, but, you know, the tax system is the leading edge of injustice, right? On that note, 
Thanks for the conversation. Thanks, John. Thanks, Karen. On, Thanks, on, John. Thanks, Laura. The, Lovely paper. Enjoyed reading it. Absolutely. Keep up the good work, Laura. The next generation depends on it. 